Oh, that brought me back to circuit 2002 when I gave my life to the Lord. And I realized that it was Christ who had saved me. It was him that my life was to, to be lived for and that he is to consume every part of my life. And I took me back there in, in a moment when I realized that my call was to him and him alone. I don't know about you, but I know that's what he's saying to the church today, that he is the one that deserves all our praise, all our worship, all of our lives. Amen. So as we sit here, we can't do nothing but praise because of what he's done. That our worship of him is not because of what we've done, but all of what Christ has done for us on that cross. Say hallelujah with me. Hallelujah with me. Hallelujah with me. Oh, glory be to God. Oh, y'all going to let me calm down. I got to calm down. Father, let me pray. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for taking, uh, just taking us away from the, the, the grave, taking us away from our sin, taking us from being a slaves to this world. But now we are in you, Father, because of your amazing grace through Christ. And so, Father, today we just stand before you say, take all of us. Don't have some of us, Lord, but take all of us. Our worship, our praise is for you and you alone, God. So, God, as I stand before your people, Lord, hide me behind your cross. It is nothing good in me that I give anybody. But it is, thus says the Lord, it is your word, it is your Holy Spirit that moves in this place. So let it move, God. Let it capture, let your spirit capture our hearts and our minds once again, Lord. Because we need your encouragement. We need your hope. Oh, Lord, we need to praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Man, it's so good to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? Amen. It is so good, amen. Y'all can clap it up for that. And it's good to be back. Uh, some of y'all are like, who is this joker up here? They said he was a pastor, amen. If you've been coming uh, just at the beginning of the year, you have not seen me, amen, because I've been on sabbatical. I have got a, I, I, Lord told me I needed to rest, amen, and I did, Amen. <laughs> So I thank the church for allowing us such, me such a, a, a great time with my family because there was so much that we were hit with in 2023 and coming in 2024, man, I don't know if I would have made it, amen. But the God said something different. And so I praise him today for what he's done. And so if you've been with us since the beginning of the year, you recognize that we are in a new series. Uh, we're launching a new series called Being Built Together. Uh, it is a defining series for our church because we're walking through 1 Corinthians, understanding how Christ builds and forms his church. Amen or oh me? And so together we're going to walk through this series going through 1 Corinthians and Pastor uh, Richard and Pastor Tim have done a wonderful job. But in that series we have a little mini-series which is uh, uh, going through our core values, how Christ wants to form this church. Amen? Our core values are, are, are not just some things we came out of the sky with, but it, we, we believe and we're trusting Jesus to form us into this type of church. Amen? So today I want to walk through one of our core values, which is uh, loving candor, loving candor. And I'm going to read it for us so we understand exactly what that means. It says, loving candor, we support. It says, we believe that speaking truth in love is vital to our growth and connection as a family. As such, we do not pit truth and love against one another, but desire a deep, full experience with both. Amen. So let the church say amen about that. And so what I'm going to do, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 4. If you can open up your Bibles, it's going to be a little weird today because we have some issues with ProPresenter. So you're going to need your Bible, your Bible app. And so why don't you do that? Just turn in your Bible, get in your Bible app, and turn to 1 Corinthians 4. We're going to be starting at verse 1, and we're going to end at verse 13. And so this is the Word of God um, for the people of God. I'm, I'm mindful of my time, amen, so I don't want to belabor this. It says, a person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. And in fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. And then praises will come to each one from God. 
Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive, if in fact you did receive it? Why do you boast as if you haven't, hadn't received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us, and I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with you. For I think God has displayed us as the apostles in last place, like men condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You, you, do, you are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the present hour, we, have, we are both hungry and thirsty. Uh, we are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we blessed. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth and everyone's garbage. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for your guidance, God, today. Your word is more important than, than, than the breath that we breathe. Your word is more important than the food that we eat. So, Lord, as you speak, Lord, feed us. Let us breathe in new life, God, through your spirit, Lord. Lord, uh, enable us to take in your word, and, but not just take in your word, but to obey your word. God, we don't want to just be hearers. We must be doers because that's who we are. Amen. And so, Father, speak to me. Speak to your church. Lord, we know that nothing good is in me. So, Lord, again, do your work in your church. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So good, again, to be with you. Today, uh, yeah, today we, it's Super Bowl Sunday. I don't think I had to say that to you, amen. I know some of y'all are anticipating it, just like me. I'm excited about today. Actually, if you ask me, today uh, it should be a holiday, amen. Because I'm going to put so much energy cheering for, for, for Travis Kelsey of the uh, uh, Kansas City Chiefs. I'm from Cleveland Heights, and that brother represents my city well. And so I'm excited about today. Uh, I actually think if I ever ran for office, my platform would be, yo, to make sure that we have Monday off, amen, after Super Bowl. That would be what I would do. But I love sports, but I'm not a fanatic. I love my teams. I'm dedicated to my teams, but I don't go overboard. And we know, all pe we know people who do, though. We, we know people whose lives are wrapped up in their teams, right? And their fandom is so intense, right? And so you know, you know when you're a fanatic, right? You, you, it exposes you because your emotional state fluctuates with wins and losses, doesn't it? Amen? I know clips that I've seen on TV or on YouTube where people have beat up or thrown their TVs or they've broken stuff just because their team lost. See, we take, our loss, we take our team's loss personally, amen, like it's an offense to us, right? And then we take their victories personally as if we are on the field actually playing with them, amen? Some of y'all know y'all knees couldn't take all that pressure, amen? But the honest truth is, uh, if our teams make the championship, like things like the Super Bowl, like what, what happens to us is that we become, we become so crazed about our teams is that, man, if somebody's rooting for the opposing team, we treat them like they're mortal enemies, don't we? Y'all don't, don't lie to yourself because I do it too. Uh, my brother Cameron, if he would be honest about here, he's a Michigan fan and I'm an Ohio State fan. On that day when Michigan and Ohio State plays, we do not like each other. Our bond is in Christ, but on that day... I don't know if he's saved, amen. <laughs> but we treat people like they're mortal enemies. We treat them with, with, with ill uh, intentions, right? We trash talk. We, 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 we call them names. And the Lord forbid if our team wins, it gives us a sense of superiority, doesn't it? We boast and we gloat. Personally, I know some folk who would disown their whole families if, just for their team, just for some tickets to the Super Bowl, Amen. But that, that's, that, that's a little bit true about all of us. I know I'm being a little bit crazed in my, ex, in my example. Because we can associate and take pride in something so much, it can cause us to be arrogant, can it? Even cause divisions. Am I right? Amen or oh me? I'm glad some of y'all said amen. 
But let me give you an example, a real example, because I'm going to do something in this room, and I'm going to confess something to you. I own an Android phone. See? I see some of y'all face. Y'all act like I can't see you. Some of y'all have judged me in my character, right? Some of y'all have said, this brother lacks judgment. How dare he preach the word of God? Y'all are going to tune me out. Ain't listen. You ain't going to listen to the rest of my sermon. I already know already. But we're okay with division, especially when it makes us feel superior or boosts our self-esteem, aren't we? This is included in the church. See, we often seek to align ourselves with people and things for self-serving purposes to boost our sense of self-worth. I serve on this ministry. I have this position even in the church. I hang out with these people. I've read these books. I, I ascribe to this form of theology. Paul said it in the previous chapter, if you were reading further than what Richard preached last week, this is the wisdom of the world and it isn't the mind of Christ. When we find our identity or worth in anything other or any person other than Christ, it makes us immature. Division in the church occur when we prioritize our affections and loyalties towards created things rather than Christ. Division stems from an identity crisis, forgetting who we belong to and failing to follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit and have the mindset of Jesus. You forget that the Lord formed you, that he shaped you, that it was him who saved you, and that you were nothing when he saved you, and it's by grace you are who you are. You forget that you should live humbly and know, and know it's Christ who makes you great. So what I want you to get from this text today that we're going through is it's humility that makes you great. It's humility that makes you great. And I got two points. If you, if you know me, I love two points because if I do a third point, we'll be here for an hour and a half. Amen? So please listen for the next 30-something minutes of this time or 40 minutes of this time. Go 40, y'all. I ain't going to clap. Uh, <laughs> that your identity and worth, the first point, your identity and worth are derived from Christ. And point two, humility is a path to discovering your identity and worth. Let us remember, Paul helped plant this church. I know Pastor Tim and Pastor Rich have told you that. And, 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 and he's been gone for a while, and he got word that this church isn't growing, and they're not maturing as they should. They were living more like the people in the city, and, and he wrote this letter to correct them in some sense. To, to, to help them see that they were not believing in the gospel, that their lives were not aligning with who they say they placed their trust in Jesus. In chapter 1 through 4, he addresses divisions. That's, that's, the, that's the majority of things that he's addressing. And it's caused by the immaturity, influenced by the Corinthian culture. This is evident in their unhealthy focus on church leaders taking sides with them and judging leaders based on superficial criteria. Now, I like his sermon better than I like this brother's sermon. I, I like the way he dressed better than I like how this pastor dressed. I like the fact that, you know, this pastor wears Jordan 1s and this one wears New Balance. I, I felt that judgment myself, amen? I had to even buy some Jordans because I felt like I was being judged as a lesser pastor. I mean, that's real, y'all. <laughs> See, they derive their, their identity and their worth by who they followed. See, in our text, Paul is coming to a conclusion on the issue. In, in chapter 4, Paul explains the ministry of the apostles to help them, right? He wants them to un understand that they are, are living in, by worldly wisdom, but he also wants to emphasize that their true identity and worth should be found in Christ and him alone. Their lives should reflect who they truly belong to. That's what I'm getting at. So that leads me into point one. It says, your identity and worth are derived from Christ. You are who God says you are, and you are to live for his approval alone. I, I'm, I love watching, you know, variety shows like, like In Living Color. Um, I, so I got, you know, even the Chappelle show, but I, I, I liked watching the, the Key and Peele show. And there was one skit that I remember, and most of y'all remember this because it went viral, was the substitute teacher. Amen? You see, I, I know some of y'all watch it too. And so if you have not watched, let me just kind of explain this, this skit for you because I think it illustrates what I'm saying. It's a, you know, it was a black substitute teacher who was accustomed to teaching in black schools. And so now he is substitute teaching in a predominantly or all-white school. And he's challenged to, as he reads the attendance because when he reads names, since he's been in a black context so much, he reads it phonetically black. Amen? 
I hope y'all understand what I mean. Some of y'all laughing because you get it. See, don't read names the way maybe the, my Anglo brothers and sisters would read them or see them the way we, my Anglo brothers would see them, amen? He reads them in a way that, because we creative black folk, let's be honest about it. So we creative in how we do names. I didn't, I, my, my wife is named Sanquanita. Y'all like, where is that derived from? I have no idea. It's a beautiful name, and it came from her sister. <laughs> it didn't come from the Bible. Uh, <laughs> there is no Sanquanita in Scripture. You, I've looked very hard. Uh-huh. But instead of pronouncing, you know, names like, you know, phonetically like we would pronounce them in, in our predominant culture, instead of you calling it saying Aaron, he says Aaron, right? Remember? Instead of Jacqueline, he says Jaquelin, right? Instead of Blake, he says Balake, amen? And through this kid, you see this frustration and tension between the kids and, and the substitute teacher. And he gets so mad that he breaks his, you know, his clipboard, man, and they're, they're frustrated with him. And this is sort of what you see in the first two verses. Paul is trying to correct how the church sees them as apostles by defining his ministry to prevent them from taking pride in them, to help stop divisions in the church. He's trying to prevent them from building their identity and value on them and trying to help them build their identity and value in Christ. In verse 1, it starts off, a person should think of us this way. One of the things about that verse, it doesn't, it doesn't have the authority I think that it should have in that translation. It, it doesn't have the force that Paul is, is saying. It is an imperative. That means it's a command. Paul is demanding them to have this perspective and this perspective alone about their ministry. He said, don't see me any other way. This is how Christ has changed us. This is how Christ has molded us and shaped us. This is our identity. When you see me and the other apostles through the lens of Christ, see us as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. Paul appears to be repeating what he said in chapter 3 about himself and Apollos, right? However, in chapter 4, he provides a more detailed explanation of what it meant, what he meant in chapter 3. You know, in other words, he's saying being a servant is not one-dimensional but multifaceted, Amen. So in chapter 3, Paul describes himself and Apollos as servants. The word he used there is the word doulos, which means bondservant. It implies a deeper sense of servitude, to, to be a slave, one who is wholly owned and obedient to a master. So he's not contradicting him in chapter, in, in, in chapter 4, though, because he uses a different word, and that word is huperetes, which refers to an under rower on a war galley boat. And the captain would give directions, and then the rower's job was to row in unison with each other, following the cadence and command of the captain. Practically, what he's saying is, Christian, you do not call the shots in your own life. You were not the captain of your own life. You don't give the direction for your own life. You don't follow your feelings or emotions. You don't follow any human being. You should surrender completely to Jesus. Paul is trying to give them a full picture of what it means to have their identity be in Christ. He's saying my identity is rooted as a servant of Christ, and I follow his voice. Whereby God says something, I just don't listen to it, I obey it. Here's the thing, obedience to God's voice is the mark of a true disciple. You are not a true disciple if you're not obeying God's voice or his word. It means your life is under the direction and authority of Christ. It means you are a true follower of Jesus when you listen to his voice. So here's the thing I want to ask you. Who's in control of your life? Who is calling the shots in your life? It's hard to hear God's voice because we allow so many voices in, don't we? So many podcasts, so many uh, influencers, so many pastors. Many of us cannot discern God's voice or the Lord's voice, because we haven't learned to silence other voices. We are so accustomed to hearing so many other voices, including our own. We continue to allow our voices of the culture to ring louder and truer than the Lord's. But the Lord is telling us in this text, there is no voice on par with mine. There is no wisdom that is more profound. There is no counsel that will lead to a more fulfilling life than the Lord's. But Paul keeps defining, so I can keep going. He also says they are managers of the mysteries of God. The word he used for manage, it means to manage the possessions of another, to manage the wealth of someone. To, it's a form of service. In other words, don't think of this like Benson or, or Jeffrey, you know what I'm saying, on the Fresh Prince, amen? 
Don't think this is a maid or a butler, but it's somebody who has a fiduciary responsibility. A person entrusted to manage another one's wealth, obligated to act in the master's best interest. Paul is emphasizing that God is giving us something valuable, the mysteries of God. And it is our responsibility to manage them in a way that God says is faithful. It's God's intention to use his word in a particular way. It's not your way that that God wants to even think about or we should even be thinking about. It's God's intention with his word. But what are these mysteries of God? I like how St. Augustine put it. He said, the mysteries of God are those divine truths that are beyond human comprehension, yet revealed to us through the grace of God. He's communicating these mysteries God has entrusted to us are of a divine revelation facilitated by the Holy Spirit concerning the redemptive plan through Christ. Amen. Paul is saying, I bear responsibility of proclaiming God's word and the message of salvation through Christ alone. It's my duty to faithfully steward this message by sharing and encouraging uh, with those inside and outside of the church. Paul is saying, this is my identity in light of what Christ has done. When we sang that song that praises what I do, this is what Paul is saying as well. This is who I am. This is my DNA. All I know and all I am is a servant of Jesus. I'm a manager of his mysteries. I can only do what God commands me to do. I'm a follower of Jesus, and that is what defines me in my life. Does that define your life? Does your life give evidence that you are a follower of Jesus? And he said, he's saying this, what, to explain his ministry, but he's also unveiling to them what their identity should be as well. So this isn't just a call to, to what the apostles do, but he's saying this is a call to all Christians. That your identity should be in Christ. That you are, what that means is that you are a servant. Uh, and to be in Christ, to be a disciple, to be a Christian, you live out, you live out of that identity that you have in Christ. Again, like Pastor Rich said last week, they were finding their identity in the narrative of this world, in the wisdom of this world, not the narrative of the gospel. The culture defined who they were and how they lived. The culture defined the aim of their lives. The culture defined their purpose, what they would do and how they should live. See, our identity and worth is shaped by what we closely associate with and the values and customs we embody through that association. The Corinthian church sin stemmed from not centering their identity on Christ, failing to grasp who they are and how they should live. I love what uh, uh, Tim Keller, the late great Tim Keller said. He said, sin is, uh, sin is the despair, despairing despairing uh, refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. This is our sin too, though. We neglect to root our deepest identity in our relationship and service to God, don't we? In other words, the biggest challenge and the biggest task of your life is to continue to allow Jesus and what he's done for you to be the defining narrative of your life. It should, it should impact how you live. It should impact your goals. It should impact your purpose and every decision you make. But does it? I'm not here to convince you because this is what Paul is doing. The Holy Spirit has enough work to do that itself within this room. Paul in this context or in this text is giving them a gift. He's showing how God defines us as servants and managers. It's that, that is our DNA. The basic makeup of every Christian is that you are a servant. And then you have a stewardship of God's word. That is who we are. Let me ask this question. Does your life give give evidence that you are truly in Christ? God has called us believers to put our full identity in him and live as stewards and live or servants or live as managers. Here's the thing. Do you realize that your call to Christ was a call to ministry? Look with the book, Trellis and the Vine, that we're reading as a church or some of us are reading as a church. And you all will be reading as a church at some point. It says, it says, every Christian is a minister, a servant of Christ. All who are united to Christ Uh, to Jesus Christ by faith, are united to his ministry. Look at that. The call to be reconciled to God is a call to be reconciled to his service. Basically, what he's saying, your call to Christ is a call to ministry. It's in your DNA. There is no other way you can get around it. It's who you are. 
Later in the book, he describes the ministry we are called to. He says, it's the basic work of any Christian ministry is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of God's Spirit and to see people converted, changed, and grow to maturity in that gospel. Amen or oh me? Being in Christ means a commitment to sharing and preaching God's word to others. When we talk about loving candor, we're talking about our lives being rooted in our identity in Christ. And our work and purpose is to speak truth in love. That's what Ephesians 4 tells us. Ephesians 4, starting at verse 15, it says, But speaking truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body. For the building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Together we build the church together by speaking truth and love to one another. Encouraging one another through scriptures. Reminding each other of Christ's work. We work together to become mature in the faith. That is the aim. We are being built together. Amen. What is maturity in the faith though? It's growing in Christ's likeness in, in our character and our conduct. That's how, we, that's how the Bible defines it. This is what we aim for. This is what we tirelessly work for in the church. That is the ministry that we all should be majoring in. That is what we do as a church. That is who we are. I, I can't say it any plainer. Are you grasped with that? Is that reality gripping your heart even today? Do you feel your life is veering off to some other direction, but God has a correcting way, a way of correcting us and giving us a detour back to the lane we should be in? Some of us are so out of our lane right now. We made life about something else other than Jesus, other than his ministry, other than his purposes. But God says, I want you back. It's not a harsh rebuke. It's a loving, open-arm invitation for you to come back and get things right. Amen. Amen. There is no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus, but there is correction. Amen. Amen. He ain't playing with y'all. He's not playing with me. And I think the reason why we struggle to embody this work, it stems from our own misplaced identity, right? Amen. And value. We don't see Christ's ministry as who we are. We don't value this work because we live for the applause of others and not for Jesus. Listen, having your identity in Christ reshapes what we believe, gives us our value and worth. That's where Paul is going for in verse 3 through 5. He's letting us know our worth comes from God's approval, not human approval. These verses are usually misinterpreted, honestly, I'm going to be honest with you. Most people say, see, see, the Bible says only God can judge you. Uh, that ain't what it says. And usually when people say that, that's cold word for what? It said, yo, look, look, I don't want accountability, right? I, I want to determine what's right and wrong for my life. They're not talking about God giving them accountability. They want no accountability, Amen. And the context helps us understand this text, because in this verse's context, people are evaluating uh, the value of Paul and the apostles' lives and their work. Uh, they, they look at Paul's suffering and, and his occupation as a tent maker and, and, they, and, his, and his poverty and suggest he wasn't a genuine apostle because in their eyes, apostles should live with more pre pre prestige. They, they should be more flashy. They should be, able, they should be flexing on everybody, you know what I'm saying? Oh, they shouldn't be driving a 2005 Honda Accord like myself. They should look good. I heard it one pastor say it one day. He, was like, he, was, he wears nice suits. He, he was considered a bishop from Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and he said it like this. I want to come up here in overall so bad sometimes when I preach, but my people won't let me. And he's saying that because people have in their mind of who they will follow. If there was a homeless person on the street right now telling you to follow me and I'll preach the gospel to you, many of you wouldn't follow them. If there was a person straight out of prison and they said, man, I want to preach the gospel, I'm called to this ministry, and y'all would say, man, this brother is crazy. He's probably this fanatic who just got out of prison. Who, what, 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 look at his life. Why would I follow somebody like that? We have in our minds what a minister looks like. And it's based on our own vain imagination and even our personal inadequacies. Let that sit with you for a second. Let it marinate. He's saying, I, this, is what, this is what he says. He's like, Paul is saying, who made you judge over me and my worth? I can't calculate my own worth. It's God who ultimately holds me accountable. 
and I live for his praise and his alone. He's saying, I live for audience one, and that's God. Ultimately, God has to give his approval over my life and my ministry. He's saying, I, only God really knows, truly knows my heart. That doesn't mean we can't add up some things about people's lives. I want y'all to hear that. That's not what he's saying. If you look like a duck, quack like, quack like a duck, and smell like a duck, it's a duck. But, but sometimes we misjudge and we misappropriate judgments on people without really the proper proof. Man, I wish I could tell you how arrogant I am sometimes. Oh, I can look at somebody and think I can make a judgment. Oh, that man, the Lord gave me discernment. Man, sometimes we do that too often. You don't know me. <laughs> Y'all see me yelling and fussing up here. Y'all don't know I, I am an introvert, amen? That proves y'all, y'all don't really know me, amen. Y'all think this brother Moe, he's lively. No, I'm not lively at all. But that's what Paul is getting at, man. I can't judge my motives. Only God can judge my motives. Only God can truly judge the intentions of a man's heart or a woman's heart. Richard touched on this uh, uh, before uh, last week. He, talk, he started talking about the Bema Seat of God. And starting in verse 12 in chapter 3, Paul talks about how God will put everyone under scrutiny, that, it will be, that all their work will be tested, and the work that survives, they will, they will gain rewards. This is known as the Bema Seat of God. And one day we will all stand before that seat where believers will stand before Christ to receive rewards or loss of rewards based on their faithfulness and stewardship of their lives and gifts. God will evaluate every person's heart and their intentions in this room. Whether we are faithful stewards of the gospel or are we seeking our own glory and trying to build our own kingdom. God will not be satisfied with us trying to do the work in our own strength either. God will ultimately show us the worth of our lives. And I'm not, I want you all to understand that this, this church are already believers. They're already saved. God has already redeemed them. This is not a salvation issue. This is a lost issue of rewards. And I mean, I ain't going to lie, if, if anybody's like me, I want to get all I can get out of something. You know what I'm saying? Amen? Like, you know, when somebody says there's free food, man, what I'm going to do is I'm gonna, I ain't just going to get the bare minimum of the free food. Amen? I'm going to stack my plate up. It's what God is telling you, in my kingdom, stack your plate up, amen? If this is a buffet, I'm giving you all you can eat, then stack up your plate in, 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 in the works of what I've called you to do in obedience to me. He's saying, well, your worth doesn't come from human criticism. The only way we can live this way, if our eyes are fixed on Jesus. That's the only way we can do this, and, and, and we're not looking for human acceptance. Not, we don't live by human criticism. The only way we can uh, uh, do this is, is, that, is that if we realize what God is calling, to, calling us to do, to proclaim his good news, to proclaiming his word, is the most worthwhile call that we could ever have. I have so many people in the church ask me, Mo, I want to know my purpose. I want to know God's vision for my life. I'll tell you right now, it's rooted in this text right now. God has called you to be a slave to him a servant to him, and to proclaim his gospel to the nations. Some of y'all are not answering that call because there's fear. I understand that. And it's okay to be scared of what God calls us to because I am. Sometimes I, I, my disobedience comes because I'm, I'm afraid what God might take away from me. What, are you, what, what am I going to risk God for this? I remember moving into the West End, man. I was like, man, I didn't lost my mind moving into this place. And, and I know Pastor John, well, Mr. John, I'm sorry, formerly known as Pastor, can attest to that because he lived around the block from me. And there's gunshots all the time. Mike, y'all know what it is. We live in the same neighborhood. My, my son had to witness, and even in our new neighborhood in English Avenue, two overdoses. We've had people OD right in our, our front lawn and backyard. And my sons have to see prostitutes. I'm sorry if you got kids in here. And I've got to explain to my kids what their lives are centered on. And I'm telling you right now, God hasn't called me away from those spaces. He's called me into it. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. Most churches, we focus on, what do we try to focus on? Impressing people. Building our programs to serve people. And that's not necessarily 100% bad. But we, have, we can't be caught up in being flashy or being trendy or, 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 or caught up in gimmicks. And I'm not saying we don't need to be relevant. Don't hear me say that or speak to the culture. But our ministry should not be defined by the culture. We have to speak to the needs of our communities, but our communities still need the gospel. 
If we are ever to be about this life, we need to place our full identity in Christ because we live out of who we are. When we find ourselves going off course, how do we get back though, right? God wants to show us the path to truly finding our identity and worth in him. And that leads me to my second point. Humility is a path to discovering your identity and worth. What that means is the way you find your identity and worth is through embracing God's grace and conforming to Christ's image. Amen? One of the travesties of the transatlantic slave trade, and I know if you're African American in here, you feel this and you're going to feel the weight of this. And you'll probably feel it in your body is the loss of identity. Amen? And I, I became keenly aware of my loss of my identity when I was in high school. Man, I was searching for my identity in so many places. Yes, I grew up without a father, and that was part of my, my, my searching for identity. But, man, I remember just realizing, man, I don't even know what country I am from in Africa. I look at my skin, and I know that there's French in my blood. Yes, there is. Amen. Hey, man, we got, I had, I, you know, let's be real. I, I know that I, I and, and I, I say this with all due respect, I know that I am not fully African. And that caused me a, a, a crisis in my own being. And I was like, man, who am I? And so through my whole college years, I was searching for who I am. I even became a black studies major. That's how deeply rooted that this identity crisis was in me. I was left grasping, searching in books. I looked at others who were visiting the continent of Africa to visit other countries to find their identity. I, I, I was looking to, 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 to other people who have moved there. But I even saw me, my, my wife just did this. She did like a 23 in me to look at our DNA to see where exactly are we from. In a similar way, this text takes us on a journey in search of how to find our identity in Christ, to find our worth in Christ. I know some of you are saying, I know this already. It's through believing in the gospel. And I would say, yes, you're exactly right. But we must continue to believe. The church is, it, 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 the church, this church is giving evidence of amnesia, that they aren't living out their identity in Christ. And what Paul wants to show them is how to find it. So he starts this verse 6 with saying, brothers and sisters, and I think he's doing that intentionally to remind them who they are in Christ, that they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul wants them to stop putting their identity in, the, in, in worth and leaders and their greatness and realize their greatness really truly comes from Christ. Verse 6 continues by saying he's applying these things to himself and Apollos for their benefit so that they won't go beyond what is written and, and so they won't be arrogant. Paul is saying, I've told you all these things about us so you don't place your identity in us. I don't want you to be prideful, but live according, excuse me, live according to the wisdom of God and be devoted to Christ. And that starts with humility. Verses 7 and 8, are, he's showing them there is no room for arrogance, but only room for humility. Christian, there is no room for pride or arrogance. There is only room in your life for humility. We read this section, and you're going to pick up on a little bit of tone. I like what uh, Jordan always says uh, when she talks about people getting a little bit, you know, little, 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 they're saying it with their chest. She always says they, people get a little spicy. And so what you're going to see, you're going to see Paul get a little spicy, right? Amen? In this text, let me read it for you. It says, who makes you superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? In fact, you didn't receive it, if, if in fact you, rec you did receive it. Why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? You're already full. You're already rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us. And I wish you did reign so that we could reign with you. Paul is trying to deliver this message in, 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 with sarcasm. And what he's saying, what he's saying, what he's trying to communicate is everything you are and have are from God. It's by grace you are who you are. He's quoting Kendrick Lamar, right? Sit down. Be humble. Amen? You're not self-made. You're not self-reliant. Your identity and worth is found through humility. Paul isn't trying to shame them, but rather for them, he's trying to help them realize that if they are to fulfill their calling and purpose, they need to live with humility. I love what 17th century writer and theologian, Francois, this is my French coming out. This is my French side coming out on me. Francois <laughs> Fenelon, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> says, amen. He says, the first, hey, 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 come on, I gotta get, if I gotta finish, that time is still going. Amen. 
It says the first step in humility is to realize that we are nothing of ourselves. And the next is to desire to be nothing but what God chooses for us. The greatest thing about you is God. The greatest thing you can do is for God, and that takes humility to live this way. But it's hard for us to live this way. Why? Because we love being a brand. We love to promote ourselves. We say that we love humility in our culture, but all we do is brag about ourselves. We embellish on our resumes, don't we? I've seen your LinkedIn. I know your job title. Amen. We sell ourselves based on our gifts and our talents. We boast in our accomplishments. We parade our successes on social media. Rarely do you see somebody parade their failures on social media. And even when they do that, it's kind of prideful, isn't it? So many social media people have come on after making mistakes, and they really don't apologize for what they did, do they? In a sense, you know, let's be honest. Okay, let me ask this question. On an interview for a, a position or a new job, when they ask you this question, what are your greatest weaknesses? Do you answer that honestly? Man, I'm glad I ain't, I ain't went out for a position in a long time. Because I would have a time, I would struggle answering. Yeah, you know, my, my greatest weakness is I care too much. Is I work hard. Amen? My point is, without God, we are nothing. He shaped us. He formed us. He gave us value. He formed us in our mother's womb. He breathed life into your body. He gave you the gifts and the talents you have. He gave you your creativity. We must recognize that our perspective on this life is often distorted and falls short of what God desires for us. He wants us to embrace his vision of what true greatness looks like. That's what verse 9 through 11 is trying to show us, is how to live great. And he's contrasting their lives as the apostles with the lives of the Corinthian church. He's saying that you need to rethink what you see as greatness. And let me read this really quickly. He said, for I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place, like men condemned to die. This doesn't sound great, does it? We have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are, you are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to this present hour, we, both, uh, uh, we, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. See, here's the thing. He's saying your value system is fundamentally different than God's. They saw greatness as gaining prestige in this world or greatness through their accomplishments. But they said... I don't see greatness in living humbly and sacrificially to the Lord. Our identity in Christ and our worth is rooted in humble, sacrificial service. That's what Matthew 23, 11 and 12, uh, 12 tells us. It says, the greatest among you will be your servant. Who exalt, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Christian greatness is not from self-exaltation or outward success, finding success in this world. It's through humiliation. To be made humble through sacrificial service, it's through humility you become great. Your sacrificial service is a witness to heaven and earth that God has given you his approval. That angels in heaven celebrate when you live sacrificially and you serve God and you serve others. Amen? Brothers and sisters, my prayer is that we don't be consumed by earthly pursuits but heavenly ones. I'm not saying you can't have goals, you can't make money or have success, that you shouldn't go to, go to college or pursue that certification, you can, that you can't build your portfolio or, or grow your business. But the ultimate aim for your life is to labor tirelessly for God's kingdom, relentlessly giving our lives, spreading the gospel to the world, even to our community. This means we have to make sacrifices. That's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about all the sacrifices they have made. We, 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 it could mean us doing a number of things, not taking the job, giving up a dream or a desire, utilizing our time, treasure, and talents without financial gain. Sacrificing money, walking with the sick and those who are struggling. But I do know what it means for all of us if it doesn't mean those things, that we have to do everything possible, possible and sacrifice everything possible to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, to build the church. We must make every sacrifice needed to, to, to see God's mission fulfilled to the world through Christ. 
We got to put away our ego and be humble. We can't be jockeying for position in the church. My title means nothing if I'm not living for Jesus and I'm not a slave to Jesus. Pastors are but examples. We're supposed to be examples. That's why the criteria is there. But it's not, it's not solo dolo for us to live that way. It's for every Christian. Nothing unique about the qualifications of a pastor. It's really talking about the qualifications to be a Christian. A lot of us could, I can go on and on about that, but I remember your call is not to your career, but your call is to Jesus Christ. I don't know, let me say this, I do know people in this church who've made sacrifices since the beginning of this church. And one, I want to applaud you. If you've never been applauded before, I want you to know, if you've been here two years, four years, five years, now this and the people who've only been here one year, but still, uh, if you've been here since the beginning, I want you to know, man, I appreciate you. But most of all, that God appreciates you. And the angels in heaven are rejoicing by your humble service, service to him in this, through this church. And here's the thing what I'm getting at. And I, and I want you to know that everything you've done is worth it. Because one day you will, you will truly receive the reward for your sacrifices. That's being in heaven with your king. But what does that sacrifice look like? The beauty of this passage is God provides clarity on what it means to live a humble, sacrificial life. Paul defines it as modeling our life after Christ. And it says in verse 12 and 13, as I finish, it says, We labor, working with our own hands. We are reviled. We bless. When we, uh, when we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are the, like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. Dang, Paul. That's a heck of a job description, isn't it? Paul is describing what it looks like to live humbly submitted to Christ, to live a sacrificial life. I love these we statements. Even though he's talking about the apostles, his desire is to see the church imitate him in the way he's living. He states that in verse 16, if you continue on in this chapter. And in verse 11, uh, uh, in chapter 11, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Each we statement embodies what it means to to live in humble, sacrificial service. It says we labor. That means we don't despise manual labor. In that culture, they said people who who did manual labor of the the lowest of caste. But as a church, we shouldn't mind getting our hands dirty. We should be the first ones running to the front lines when there's needs in our community and in our world. Don't look for the government to do what we can do. I'm not having a political position. I'm having a Bible position, a biblical position. Don't look for anybody to bail out our community. We got to stand on the front lines, the lobby too, amen, for our schools to get more money. We got to run for office. We need Christians in position of authority too. Man, let me keep going, boy, because I'm going to keep going. I'm going to go off a little bit, amen. We bless. To be reviled in this text means to be attacked or abused for our faith. It's not saying stay in an abusive situation. If you are proclaiming Christ, you will be attacked for your faith. To bless means to have goodwill towards those who would cause you harm. This doesn't mean return evil for evil or an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But I say that's what the Lord says. It means that we serve people even when they do us wrong. We endure. We all are going through trials. Last year, it felt like, man, trial after trial after trial. And coming into this year, it still feels the same way. But God says to stand firm, to be steadfast in your faith, patiently waiting for Christ's return. As we suffer in this world, it's temporary. Suffering uh, will cease completely one day. But while until that day, God is saying, be rooted in my gospel. Allow that to navigate and, and to give you energy and power to continue on. It says we respond in grace. God has called you to give the same grace he has given to you. Amen. Our church isn't here to condemn people, but offer them Christ and forgiveness. Amen. We identify, and I love this one, because it says we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. God has not called us to live on thrones, church, but to live with people, to embody Christ to our community, to embody his sacrificial service to everyone we come in contact with. That means there is no one we should be scared to touch. Nowhere we we should be scared to live. We give ourselves wholly to the mission of God. This is what I believe. 
This is what I believe because this is what the Bible says in 1 Peter 12, 2 through 21. What it's saying is that this is what embodies a life that is modeled after Jesus. It says, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. Jesus is the perfect model for our lives. And he shows us what it means to be great in this world. He lived with humble, sacrificial service to everybody. Uh, and he lived in humble, sacrificial, he, uh, uh, he died as a humble, sacrificial death to everybody as well, for everybody. One of the reasons we need to be reminded of the gospel is because we need to be reminded how to live. Christ left his throne in heaven and humbly came to earth, laying aside his rights, didn't he? Putting on human flesh, Jesus modeled a life of service to God, perfectly lived for God, for his glory, despite all opposition. While on earth, he befriended sinners and those the society despised. He he was reviled and persecuted, slandered and abandoned, falsely accused. Christ suffered. But through it all, he remained faithful to the Father. He willfully gave himself to be sacrificed on a cross. He died a humiliating death of a criminal. He humbly went to the cross for the sake of those who put him there, serving his God and living and giving us grace. Our lives are to embody Christ's life because he lives in us through his spirit. Amen. It doesn't stop there. Christ was placed in a tomb and three days later he was resurrected, freeing us from being slaves to this world, slaves to our own sin. But now we are servants of Christ. You understand that that's your identity. And then when he ascended to heaven, he is now seated with the Father, and he's preparing a place for us, for his people, for his children. This world isn't all we have, so don't live for this world. Live for Jesus. And he left us his spirit to empower us to live for him on on this side of eternity. The gospel calls us to a cruciform life, amen, where our exaltation is from our humiliation, a life of humble sacrificial service to our Lord, Friends, let me just remind you of my bottom line again. It's through humility we become great. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you're doing in the life of Cornerstone. Thank you for your love. Thank you that we get to sit here, God, under your word, Father. Lord, whether we are convicted, whether it fell on deaf ears, Lord, soften our hearts right now. We need your Holy Spirit to do work in us. We can't do that work. Only the Spirit can illuminate our hearts and our minds to what you have for us. Let us live in humble submission to you, God, because that's what you need and want from us. God, to make a dent in this world, to make a dent in, 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 for this, in this world, we must live as your slaves. Lord, we must not live to our own accord but to you alone. God, I pray that for this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.